0: Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's sermon podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the Book of Mark. And as you are turning there, let me—I uh, want to point out something. If uh, for the kids that are in the service with us this morning, uh, Britt and I, we made an attempt to have kind of a worship notes for kids that goes along with the message. It has the verse that we're going through. It's got spots for them to answer some questions, to write down some questions they would have for their parents, things like that. So we definitely are trying to engage more with kids uh, that are here in the in the service. And so those are back at the, uh, the, the offering box there, but we have... Uh, There's one here too. So give us some feedback on that. Let us know uh, if that's helpful um, to you. If that's helping you shepherd your kids uh, uh, better and helping them be engaged with with the scripture. So give us some feedback on that. All right. Well, if you're turning to Mark, we're going to be in chapter one as we are continuing our series going through the book of Mark. And you remember last week we were introduced to John the Baptist. And we looked at how the Old Testament prophets had prophesied that there would be one that would come that would prepare the way for the Christ. That there would be a messenger, a prophet sent to prepare the way, prepare a people to walk with God and prepare the way for the Christ to come. He was, he was sent, John the Baptist was sent to prepare, to get people's hearts ready for the coming Messiah. And he was not preaching a message calling them to pretend or perform or just change their behavior. He wasn't preaching a message calling for better performance, but he was preaching a message of radical repentance And so he was calling people to turn, to turn from living lives that were isolated and independent from God, and calling them to turn to now live lives that are in community with God and with his people. And then he was baptizing them in the Jordan River. And people were responding. The crowds were coming to John, they were coming out to the wilderness, they were repenting, they were confessing, they were being baptized. And John became an instant celebrity, so much so that even people were wondering if John the Baptist was the Christ, if John the Baptist was the Messiah. Now, here's the cool thing about John. He didn't let all that attention or he didn't let the crowd go to his head. What, ju- what John does instead is he uses his platform to now point people to Jesus. He says, no, it's not me. It's not, I'm not the one you've been longing for and waiting for. There is one coming after me that is far greater than I. And so he uses that platform. He uses the crowds that God had brought to him to now point them to Jesus. He says, the hero you've been longing for is coming, but it's not me. He says, the hero you've been longing for is coming, but it is not me. And isn't it interesting how humanity longs for a hero. I would say humanity longs for a hero. I don't think you have to look around too much to realize that this is true. I don't think you have to look around too much to see this desire in humanity for a hero. I mean, look at, at, at most movies, at most books, at most stories that we write, and what you will find in them is a hero shows up at some point to rescue a hero shows up at some point to rescue. And then some of you have children right now are kind of in that superhero phase, right? We have this fascination with superheroes. Some of us never grow out of that phase, right? But we have this fascination with heroes. And then think about even when you were a kid, you wanted to be probably a public service hero, right? You wanted to be a firefighter or a police officer or a soldier. And why was that? Why Why this fascination with heroes? I would say it's because humanity longs for a hero humanity longs for a hero and we now arrive at verse 9 in mark 1 verse 9 which is going to be a key verse because the hero of the story the hero of the bible the hero of the universe enters Jesus arrives on the scene and we're going to see he brought his crew with him as well so let's look at mark 1 verse 9 mark 1 verse 9 In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Okay, so verse 9 is such a cool verse because what we have been seeing so far is that the many, many, many people were coming to the one John the Baptist to be baptized. But now in verse 9, the one Jesus was coming to be baptized for the many, Jesus shows up and everything changes. Everything changes. Which doesn't this seem to be what happens when Jesus shows up? When Jesus arrives, everything changes. Everything gets flipped upside down. Now the first are going to be the last. Now if you want to be the greatest, you got to wash people's feet, right? Like everything changes. Everything gets flipped upside down. I don't care if it's tables in the temple or if it's the hearts of his people. When Jesus shows up, everything gets flipped over and everything changes. This is true. Anywhere and everywhere, we were all building our own kingdoms. We were all living for ourselves, living our own lives. Jesus shows up and everything changes. When Jesus shows up in a marriage, everything changes. When Jesus shows up in a church, when the gospel is proclaimed and Jesus is celebrated and cherished, everything changes in that church. When Jesus arrives, everything changes. Praise God. And so here, out in the wilderness, people are flocking to John to repent, confess, and be baptized, and here Jesus shows up, and now everything's going to change. Instead of the many coming to the one to be baptized, now the one, the true one, Jesus, is coming to be baptized and eventually crucified for the many. And Mark doesn't record it when John first sees Jesus coming, but what we see he says in the Gospel of John, we see John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming, says in John one twenty nine, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John recognizes Jesus. For who he is, he is the lamb of God, the one who has come to be the once and for all sacrifice, the one who has come to be the once and for all purification for the sins of God's people. But here's what John doesn't understand. Jesus is coming to him to be baptized And John's going to give a little bit of pushback on this at first, right? And we see in the other gospel accounts, like, John's like, whoa, 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 Jesus, like, uh, you should be baptizing me. Why do you want me to be baptizing you? And maybe you're even thinking the same. Like, why in the world did Jesus get baptized? I thought John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It's not like Jesus needed to repent of anything. We know he was sinless. He didn't need to confess sin. He didn't need to repent of sin. Why would Jesus... Be baptized. In the Gospel of Matthew, it gives us a little bit more insight to why Jesus was baptized. After John had initially said, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, we then see in Matthew 3:15, but Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus did not get baptized because he needed to repent or needed to confess sin. No, we know that Jesus was without sin. But he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And one way this fulfilled all righteousness is it was endorsing, Jesus' baptism was endorsing and associating John's ministry with Jesus' ministry. Okay, Meaning it was declaring that by Jesus getting baptized by John, he was affirming that John's uh, ministry was legit. He was saying, okay, yes, John is that prophet, that messenger that was sent to prepare the way. He's he's the one that prepares the way, but now Jesus is here. The hero is here. And so this was now sort of a passing of the baton, so to speak. It was an acknowledging of John's ministry, preparing people for the way, but now at Jesus' baptism, it was inaugurating and starting the official ministry of Jesus here on earth. It was the true hero now commencing his rescue mission. But here's what's so amazing about Jesus and where we need to stop and worship him this morning. He didn't need to get baptized. And he didn't need to go out to the wilderness and be baptized. And he didn't need to necessarily even come down to earth to go out to the wilderness to be baptized by one of his creation. Jesus' baptism should be just as shocking to us as his death on the cross is. Because both were not things that he had to do. But instead, instead, Jesus willingly, Jesus willingly associates with rebellious humanity so that we can now be reconciled to God. He identifies with us so that one day we could identify with him. And so this is radical, This is unheard of. Every other religion or belief system consists of people trying to get to God. But the truth, the truth is not that we have to get to God, but that God got to us. God got to us. We do not have to get to God, God has gotten to us. Jesus willingly associates with rebellious humanity. He goes out to the wilderness, goes out to the people who are repenting and confessing. He goes out to his people, he goes out to identify with them so that one day they could be identified with him and reconciled to God. And so Jesus came to walk amongst us and to ultimately be our substitute, our substitute. I know many of you know that eventually he would be our substitute on the cross, that he would pay the penalty for our sin in our place on the cross. But he also came to live a life of obedience in our place. He also came to live a life of obedience as our substitute. And so yeah, he didn't have to be baptized just like he didn't have to die on the cross, but he did this to fulfill all righteousness. He lived and died as our substitute. And so because Jesus did fulfill all righteousness, because he lived a life of perfect obedience, his obedience is now credited to us, and we can be declared righteous in God's sight. I'm telling you, when Jesus shows up, everything changes. Apart from Christ, it is obey, 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 so that you can be righteous. Now in Christ, it is, you are righteous, therefore obey. And church, this should give you great joy that Jesus has obeyed in our place because now we can rest in his work and we can walk by the power of the Holy Spirit who now enables us to obey God out of delight, not out of duty. And so no, Jesus did not have to be baptized, just like he didn't have to die on a cross He didn't have to grow up in humble surroundings like Nazareth. He didn't have to wash people's feet. He didn't have to call the disciples. He didn't have to go out to the wilderness to all the people who were confessing and repenting, but he willingly went, and he willingly associates with us. The God of the universe humbled himself, came down to earth, and goes out to the wilderness to meet his people And I love John Piper's description of it. He says it this way. He says, When Jesus was baptized, along with all the repenting people who wanted to be on God's side, it was as though the commander-in-chief had come to the front lines, strapped on his helmet, and jumped into the trench along with the rest of us and when he did that his father in heaven who had sent him for this very combat signified with the appearance of a dove that the holy spirit would be with him in the battles to come and next week we're going to see his first battle with the enemy out in the wilderness but for now look back at mark 1 verse 10 and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Okay, Jesus is baptized by John and when he comes up out of the water, three things happen. One is the heavens are torn open, a Spirit, the spirit descends, and a voice from heaven speaks. Mark is making note of all three of these things because according to the Old Testament and other Jewish writings, all three signified the coming of God's kingdom. Isaiah 64, one says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Rend means to tear the heavens, to tear open. Isaiah was saying, oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down. And remember, up until this point, there had been about 400 years where God had been silent. It had been about 400 years since God's spirit had spoken through a prophet to his people. I mean, you think you've had some dry spells where you haven't heard from the Lord in a while, right? I mean, it had been 400 years since God's people had heard God speak. They had been in a wilderness season, so to speak. It had been dry. They had been longing for a word from God. And here it is. Get ready. Here it is. Here we see the heavens torn open. Here we see the long-awaited return of God's Spirit descend. And here we see a voice from heaven declare that Jesus is the Son of God. And so Mark is showing us by these three things, he's declaring that God's kingdom is here. Mark is also making note of these three things, the heavens being torn open, the spirit descending, and a voice speaking because Jesus' baptism should also be giving us a picture and a shadow of his crucifixion. Not only remember just baptism in and of itself, like what we talked about last week, is a picture of Jesus' death and resurrection. Not only that, but when Jesus comes out of the water, it says he saw the heavens being torn open. Torn open. This word, torn open, Mark uses it one other time in the book. The one other time he uses torn open, it's when Jesus is crucified and the temple curtain is torn open and God can now dwell with his people. Jesus' baptism should also be pointing you to his crucifixion because after he is baptized, a voice from heaven declares him to be the son of God. And at his crucifixion, we will see a similar declaration, not from heaven, but by a Roman centurion who says, surely this was the son of God. So even here at the start of Mark's gospel, at Jesus' baptism, we are being pointed to his death and his resurrection. But another cool thing that happens at Jesus' baptism is that our triune God is revealed. We see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all show up here in this passage. And so we need to stop and we need to talk about the Trinity a little bit this morning, okay? Okay. We need to talk about how we believe there is one God in three persons. It can be easy to say that. It can be easy to teach and learn, okay, one God, three persons. But it is much more difficult to try to even scratch the surface of understanding that. And it is impossible to get your mind around that, okay? A couple of years ago, our family gathered at uh, my mom's birthday, uh, for my mom's birthday party. And so our boys were seated around the table along with our nephew's. And dad was uh, gathering everyone before we said a prayer for, for the meal. And he said, okay, boys, who are we here to celebrate tonight? And like any good church kid, they know the answer is usually always Jesus, right? So all the boys, you know, let out a hearty, Jesus. And like any good pastor, you can't really say you're not there to celebrate Jesus. So he kind of went with it. You know, yeah, yeah, we're here to celebrate Jesus who else are we here to celebrate, boys? Who, who else besides Jesus, you know, trying to get them to say Grammy? Like, who else are we here to celebrate? And then silence. And then we get a God the Father. Wow. And we laugh, right? You know, laugh, you know, kind of chuckle, like, oh, man, that's pretty cool, right? Yeah, yeah. All right. But Dad's like, no, 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 come on. I mean, yeah, that's good. That's good. But who else are we here to celebrate? And then there was even longer, longer silence. And then Jamin, you know, in just his high-pitched, sweet, smiley, joyful voice, lets out with a big grin. He says, and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And I was just in the background just like, yeah proudest moment as a father up until this point, right? Right, they got all three. They nailed all three persons of the Trinity. Now, don't feel bad. They eventually recognized that it was Grammy's birthday, and we did celebrate Grammy as well. But my point in sharing that is even very young children can understand one God, or at least know one God, three persons, but it's really gonna take a lifetime and then some to even start to really understand what that means. Adrian Rogers was a pastor and a former president of the SBC. He once said this, he said, the doctrine of the Trinity is not beyond logic and reason, it's just above it. It's just above it. The doctrine of the Trinity is not beyond logic and reason, it's just above it. And listen, here's why God can be so hard to understand and explain sometimes. And here is why the Trinity is so hard for us to get our minds around. It is so difficult because it is creation trying to understand and explain its creator. Now, I can explain and I can help you understand created things right i mean i can explain to you how a clock works we can take a look at a clock i can describe how there's numbers on a clock that help us keep time how they've got hands on the clock one for hour one for minute sometimes one for second and then you know if we really wanted to study i could try to read and learn how even like the motor in the clock works and if you really wanted to understand how a clock works if you really put your mind to it and really studied it you could get your mind around how a clock works you could figure out how it operates. Why? Because it's man-made. It's a created thing. And even thinking then a little bit more complex, what about things that aren't man-made but maybe God-made, right? Let's even think about the human body. Now, the human body is still creation, though, it's a little bit more complex than man-made things, but we can start to get our minds around some of the anatomy and physiology of the human body, and we're making advances in medicine and healthcare as we're understanding the human body more. And so if you put your mind to it to study different you know, systems of the body, you could start to figure it out, you could start to get your mind around it. But why? It's a created thing. It's a created thing. Here's one reason I know that our God is the true and living God, and why I know that he is creator and not made up by man. It is because we can't get our minds around him. Like Pastor Roger said, he's not beyond logic and reason, he's just above it. Now, we know a lot about God, okay? God has revealed himself to us through his word, through his creation, through Jesus. So we do know a lot about God. His word is sufficient. He has given us all we need to know for life and for salvation, but we don't know everything about God. God has given us what we need. He has given us, his word is sufficient, but it's not exhaustive. And so there are a lot of things about God that are hard to understand, They're hard to understand why he works the way he does. But listen, that inability for us to get our minds completely wrapped around him, that inability to have him totally all figured out, it shouldn't plant uh, seeds of doubt in our heart of his existence or of his word. It should instead stir our hearts in worship and to be in awe of this great God. He is creator, and we are creation. I would be way more concerned about the existence of God if we had God all figured out. Because the things we've got all figured out are man-made things. Case in point, false gods are easy to figure out, right? If you do this, this, and this, they bless you. If you don't, they curse you. We can get our minds around that. We can get our minds around other religions. We can understand Buddhism to some degree. We can figure out all the millions of gods of Hinduism. Why? Because they are man-made. They are man-made but not our God, not our God. The true and living God, there are some things about him that we study and we read and we meditate on and they just leave us in awe of him, in awe of him. And the Trinity is one of those things. The Trinity is one of those things that we we read, we study, we meditate on and they leave us in awe of him. And so if you're hoping that I'm going to say something this morning that is going to all of a sudden make one God and three persons click in your mind, you are going to be greatly disappointed at the end of this sermon, okay? You might be thinking, Grant, like, man, can't you just give me something? Give me something I can get my mind around that will make this Trinity thing make sense. Like, can't you just tell me that the Trinity is like an egg, right? Like shell, white part yolk, three parts, one egg. Just tell me the Trinity is like an egg, Grant, please. Or Grant, just tell me that the Trinity is like H2O, right? Sometimes solid, sometimes vapor, sometimes liquid. That I can get my mind around that. Just tell me that the Trinity is like H2O. Or maybe you're thinking, Grant, just tell me the Trinity is like a clover, right? You know, got three little leaves, but it's all, all one clover. Listen, it would be nice if I could give you something to get your mind around, but all analogies about the Trinity, they are probably well-intentioned, but they are all garbage, okay? (laughs) At best, they fall dramatically short of the glory of God, and at worst, they give us an unhealthy understanding of who God is, So no Trinity analogies this morning. He's not like an egg, and he's not like H2O. There is no one and nothing like our God. Okay, but let's go. What do we believe, and what does the Bible teach about this triune God? So we believe in one God who has existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who know, who love, and glorify one another. And they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. This isn't one God that takes on different forms, like sometimes he's the son, sometimes he's the father, sometimes he's the spirit. No, this is one God existing in three distinct persons. And in Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, he says this. He says, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, And there is one God. If you are at all trying to stay with me, at this point, your head should be hurting at least a little bit, right? At least a little mild aching going on, like the headache is coming, okay? So we realize that the Trinity is difficult to understand. It is something that we can't get our minds around. And so because of this, we've even set up, you know, a special email account for you to email any specific questions that you have about the Trinity. So if you have your pens, get them, write this down, a special email account for questions about the Trinity. It is Gary at at franklincitychurch.com, okay? Okay, that is also a great email account for complaints or anything like that, all right? It's a special account just for that, all right? But here's why we can't ignore this doctrine, all right? We can't ignore it. We can't just brush through this and just get to Jesus out in the wilderness, right, being tempted by, by Satan. We can't just skip through this passage. Knowing that the true God of the universe is one God in three persons It guards us against false beliefs as well as it gives us guidance in life, knowing that we were created in the image of this triune God. If we forget that God is one God existing in three persons, we can falsely believe that God was lonely and therefore needed to create people for companionship. Like, like in eternity past, he was just lost and lonely. He, he, he was longing for companionship that would only be fulfilled once he created you, right? Like he was just lonely. He needed us for companionship. That is false, right? Now, he does enjoy fellowship with his creation. Don't get me wrong. He does enjoy fellowship with his creation, but there wasn't this fellowship need that he had. When he created us, no God has existed in perfect fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit for all eternity. God also did not create us because he needed someone to love and someone to love him. No God has existed in eternal, perfect, loving relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. And so here we have Father, Son, and Spirit, all three, equally God, all three loving and in perfect fellowship with one another, in perfect community with one another, so much so that they dwell in unity. They dwell in unity. Now, just because they dwell in unity does not mean that they dwell in uniformity. Each person of the Trinity has different or distinct roles. So just even thinking about our salvation, Each person of the Trinity had a distinct role in our salvation, but all are inseparable from the others. So God the Father ordained it. God the Son accomplished it. God the Spirit has applied it and sealed it. These are distinct roles that each person carries out, but they carry it out in community with one another to where they are inseparable from one another. So the Father creates. The Father creates. He speaks things into life. But even as he's creating, he's doing this along with the Son and the Spirit. The Son saves. The Son saves, but he's doing this along with the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit sanctifies. The Spirit brings about transformation. But he's doing this along with the Father and the Son. And so there are three persons in distinct roles that are inseparable from the others. The Father works with the Son and the Spirit, but is not the Son and the Spirit. The Son works with the Father and the Spirit, but is not the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit works with Father and the Son, but is not Father or the Son. Is anyone still with me here? Anyone still with me? Come on now, let's go. So let me repeat that quote from Wayne Grudem. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Well, here's what our world can't understand but desperately longs for. They long for unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. We think, we falsely think to have unity means we need to have uniformity meaning that we need everyone to look and think and be the same. And then we, in our sin, we let our diversity, we let our differences drive us apart. But church, we were created in the image of God, a God with three distinct different persons yet perfectly dwelling in unity, so much so that we worship one God. And church, we have the privilege of showing God to the world. We have the privilege of reflecting his glory to the world around us. And so this is why we strive for unity in the church. This is why we pray for unity in the church. This is why we fight for unity in the church. And this is why the unity is, our unity is what the enemy will come after first in the church as well. This is why there will always be temptation to gossip in church so that our unity will be broken. This is why there will always be temptation to elevate your preferences above others' preferences so that our unity will be broken. And you watch. If it hasn't happened already, it most definitely will happen. Why? Because our unity shows the glory of the triune God to the world and therefore it will always be under attack. Now notice I did not say uniformity shows the glory of our God to the world. I said unity. Which is another reason we need to strive as a church, we need to strive for diversity. It is far too easy to become a church that looks and thinks and talks like everyone else. We all start to look and act the same. But if that happens, we miss out on the richness of the glory of what the church is supposed to be. We are supposed to be a people who enjoy unity in diversity. And so my prayer is that we would be diverse, whether it be our ethnicity, our age, our socioeconomic status, our clothing, our backgrounds, our education. So pray this for our church. Pray that we would enjoy unity in diversity. If you wanna show the world who God is, give them a picture. The church should be a picture of what they are longing for as fellow image bearers of a triune God. What a beautiful passage this is in Mark, where the hero arrives and God reveals himself as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus has arrived to accomplish salvation. He has been sent by the Father and empowered by the Spirit. The hero we have been longing for is finally here. Now in concluding this morning, I wanna go back to our fascination with heroes for a moment, and I was listening to a story of a group of researchers, some scientists and journalists who were doing research on why people do heroic acts, okay? They were most specifically looking at what are people thinking when they risk their lives for someone else, and this is what they set out to study, to do some interviews. What are people thinking when they risk their lives for someone else? And honestly, as I was listening to this, it became very just frustrating and sad to listen to them because here was a group of of people who started with a worldview that life and everything in it was just a big accident and humans are just the same as animals and so they couldn't get their minds around why someone would risk their life to save someone else's life. Like it goes against everything you think would be instinctive in an animal, and it goes against every sort of survival of the fittest reasoning. And so they couldn't get their minds around why human beings would act heroically, why human beings would risk their lives to save and rescue someone else. And so they set out to find people who had been heroic. They set out to find people who had rescued someone else, and they interviewed them, and they tried to figure out if they could find an underlying common denominator, and so they interviewed first a woman who had uh, uh, been driving in her car and noticed out in the field that another woman was being mauled and attacked by a bull. And so this lady pulled the car over, hopped out of her car, went and jumped over an electric fence and started punching this bull in the face so the other woman could escape. <laughs> That's pretty amazing, right? She's a hero. That's a heroic act. Then they interviewed a man who witnessed a car accident outside of his house. A car had flipped over, caught on fire. There were four teenagers trapped in the car. He suffered burns to himself, got in the car, and pulled all four teenagers out to safety. And when they were interviewing these heroes, the researchers were baffled at these events. Like what logical reasoning was going on in these people's brains that would make them do this, that would make them risk their lives for complete strangers? And the heroes, they couldn't really explain it. They said in the moment, they didn't think. They just responded. They just responded. And I'm listening to this in my car, getting so frustrated and pent up with emotion because my soul was screaming. Because the reason people perform heroic acts is that we were created in the image of a heroic God. The reason we rescue is because we were created in the image of a God who rescues. And then this last story really messed them up, okay? This last story just, they, they were left speechless. They're like, something's happening in my heart. I don't know what happened to, okay? So this last story was crazy. It was in New York City, and it was a 40-year-old construction worker who had jumped on the tracks to save another man. So the story was, this a 40-year-old construction worker was with his two daughters, a six-year-old and a four-year-old. He was holding their hands, waiting for the train to come. Another stranger, a young man he did not know, started having a seizure and fell onto the tracks, so fell off the platform onto the tracks, and a train was coming. This man, without even thinking, lets go of his four- and six-year-old daughter's hands and jumps onto the tracks and tries to pull this guy off of the track. Now, if you've been around anyone that's having a seizure, you know that's not an easy task. And so he's trying to get a good grip, trying to pull this guy off the tracks, but keeps slipping, keeps losing his grip, and the train keeps getting closer and closer. He tries one more time to pull, can't get him, sees the trains right there, and then listen to what he does. Listen, he gets in the middle of the track with the man who's seizing, and he bear hugs him. And he pushes them as flat as he can on the ground, and the train passes over him. And as the train is passing over them, the seizing man, still groggy, starting to wake up, now is freaking out, realizing he's underneath a train. And this construction worker says this. This is a quote. He says, sir, you had a seizure. It's okay. It's okay. I came down here to save your life. At this point, the researchers are just like, uh, what is this? What do we do with that? What's happening in my heart right now, right? And at this point, I'm weeping and screaming in the car because, church, that is the gospel. That is the gospel. That is the good, glad, joyful news. This is the good news that makes our hearts glad, that awakens us to life, that makes us want to to dance and leap for joy. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Church, in our sin, we were the man seizing on the train tracks. We were dead men and women. We were completely helpless in getting ourselves off of the tracks. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, The two most beautiful words in the Bible, but God, but God, but God, the true hero, the true rescuer, came down from heaven. He jumped onto the tracks. He came to us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Church, when Jesus came to earth, it was like him jumping onto the train tracks. He said, your problem is now my problem. And on the cross, he stretched out his arms. He put us in a bear hug. He covered us as the wrath of God passed over. And when he rose, when he crawled out from under the train, when he victoriously walked out of the grave, we rose with him to new life. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. Church, the hero has arrived. It's okay. It's okay. He came down here to save us. He is a God who saves. He is a God who rescues. What the Father has ordained the Son has accomplished and the Spirit has sealed. Let's pray. God, you are you are the hero. And we praise you, God, that you are a God who saves that you are a God who rescues. God, what a joy it is to be able to say that now, because of your grace and mercy, we are in Christ. We are in your bear hug, God. May we never forget that and may it awaken our hearts to find joy and life in you. In Jesus' name, amen.